This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Tuilan Liu. This is the Buddhist Studies Podcast. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. In today's program, we will be speaking with Dr. Ruth Gamble. Ruth is an environmental and cultural historian of Tibet, the Himalaya, and Asia. She's currently a lecturer at La Trobe University in Australia. Today, Ruth and I will talk about her new book, The Third Kamaba Rangjung Dorje, Master of Mahamudra. This book came out with Shambhala Publications recently in 2020. Ruth is also the author of another book, Reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism, The Third Kamaba and the Invention of a Tradition. And the second book, and this book came out with Oxford University in 2018, two years ago. So welcome to the program, Ruth. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. So first of all, I wanted to congratulate you on the publication of another fantastic book. And Ruth, I have to tell you this, as soon as I picked up the book, I literally could not put it down until I finished it. It's so well-researched and beautifully written, and I can easily imagine how, how you know, different readers could enjoy and appreciate this book for different reasons. And to those of you who are listening to this podcast right now, whether you are interested in Buddhism, Tibet, poetry or life stories in general, you will not be disappointed when you open this book. So without further ado, uh, Bruce, can you talk about what brought you to the field to write about Tibet? Wow, you think that's an easy question. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was kind of a long journey. I don't mean not quite as long as the journeys that Zhangjian um, Dorji went on in his life. But um, So I was interested in uh, meditation as a teenage skateboarder. And I actually talked about this in the beginning of the, uh, uh, in, the pro- in the prologue to the book. And uh, so, yeah, going to do meditation while skateboarding. <laughs> um, I used to skate to meditation class. And then uh, through going to those classes, I ended up going to the mountains when I was just still a teenager, um, which is like three years ago. Um, and then uh, and, uh, when I got there, I was just blown away by the mountains. I, I, like I literally... I remember the time that I first saw these mountains in the sky. So I was kept being drawn back to the place as well as the stories. Um, and then uh, so I worked as a – I left school and because I was the first person in my family to go to uni, I, university, sorry, um, that's Australian for university, I had to pick a job, a, a, a degree with a job in the title. So I studied journalism, but I was a really bad journalist um, and did that for a few years. And But then I got a, a scholarship to go and study Tibetan in India. Um, so I went and studied Tibetan there. I worked as an interpreter then went to did another degree in Asian studies, which I liked better than journalism. Uh, then did a PhD um, 
yeah, in uh, working on uh, this this material on the on the life stories and poems of the third Kamapa Rangjun Dorji. Okay, that sounds like a very long journey. It is. Um, I left out this interlude snowboarding, so I cut it short. Yeah. Okay, so um, this new book is about the life story and writings of a remarkable Tibetan, the third Kamapa Rangjun Dorji. This is indeed your second book about him. So, can you talk about who this person is? And what made you so interested in writing about him? So basically, how did you begin working on this particular project? So I actually stumbled across Rangjun Dorje, um, almost literally, because I, I did my honours thesis, which is like a master's, um, on the poems of Milarepa, and I was really interested in this kind of uh, the genre uh, of uh, um, lu uh, or gur songs in the Tibetan tradition and the Doha, uh, associated with the Doha in uh, the Indic tradition, and I wanted to write a thesis on um, Milarepa, a PhD thesis, and someone had already done that, right? So I had to kind of, uh, I was a bit stuck, and someone handed me, it was back in the day, right, so they handed me a CD with the collected works of Rangjun Dorji on it, and I thought, oh, this is worth a look. And then I found this massive collection of um, uh, of his songs, of these uh, good on this this CD, there were so many, uh, and I and I was like, I didn't know it was like finding a treasure that there was this whole collection. And then, as I was working my way through his collected works, I also found these um, two autobiographies uh, of, of, by him of different sections of his life. And then I was completely intrigued. This combination of personal stories and then very personal songs, like very personal songs, um, that I really felt like I got a sense of this person. So I became totally fascinated with his life, his songs, and, and they kind of complemented each other because the, the life story set out the narrative but did it in a ki- kind of conventional way. But then the songs really took you into, into his experiences and feelings as he moved um, through the world. So, yeah, it was a very uh, interesting combination. And, and I should say on top of that, I think the, his life story in itself really resonated with me. Um, because he was really an outsider. Um, he grew up really uh, uh, outside the main kind of power structures within Tibet. He travelled around. He was really interested in the environment. Um, and he, his, he went so far. So during his lifetime, starting off as a, a, a kind of a, almost outcast uh, on the edges of the, t- of the Tibetan plateau and ending up his life as the guru to the last Mongol emperor, right? That's the biggest empire in world history, contiguous empire in world history, and he was right there at the centre center of it. Um, so that life story is completely amazing to me. Yeah. So your your journey with this project actually started with an unexpected encounter. It did. And, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, this person, Rangjong Dorje, um, he also ha- carries this title, the third Kamaba, and yeah. um, for our listeners who might be less familiar with this tradition, can you explain what does that mean? Where did he get that title? What does that title mean? Right. So he, yeah, he didn't, the, the idea of him being the third Kamapa um, is something that kind of evolved through his storytelling and his identity throughout his life. So uh, the Kamapas are a series of reincarnate um, uh, gurus in, or teachers in the Tibetan tradition that that are kind of when people tell their story it goes all the way back to the 11th century and there's uh two competing candidates for the 17th kamapa at the moment 
living today. So it's a very long history. Uh, and these were the first people that they kind of lined up in a row and said, this person is the reincarnation of this person is the reincarnation of this person. Uh, other examples of a, a reincarnate system, the most famous one is, of course, the Dalai Lamas. And we're now up to the 14th Dalai Lama. So when I was reading his, um, so when I started reading his life story, I came with this preconception uh, that this, that he was, that he, his life had followed the same pattern as all the other uh, Kamapas in that he was, and all the other members, all the other reincarnates uh, for that matter, who are discovered or, or given the title as young children, trained in the tradition uh, then take on other students who are other reincarnate lineages, people from other reincarnate lineages, and then pass away and then their students find them and then the passage continues. But what I discovered reading Ranjan Dodge's work is that during his lifetime, part of his personal project is to establish himself as a Kamapa. Right? And he doesn't always call himself the third Kamapa. He sees himself as being the reincarnation of the second what we now know is the second Kamapa, who was kind of the first person to be called the Kamapa because his name was Karma Pakshi and he was from a monastery called Kama Gumpa. So he gets called Kamapa, the person of Karma. And then that Kamapa saw himself as a reincarnation of a another Buddhist teacher, Tusum Kyempa. So uh, Ranjan Dorji was establishing himself as the third in a line. And there had been people who'd seen themselves as the reincarnation of someone else before, but that idea of being third in a line really kind of cemented the idea that this would keep happening. And he sits about setting up all of the kind of literary, but also uh, architectural establishes monasteries and sets up all of their kind of infrastructures, so the cultural and social infrastructure for that, um, for that tradition to continue past his lifetime. Okay, so this sounds like a you know a really interesting institution. Um, can you perhaps maybe elaborate further on the history of the reincarnation institution to help us understand whether um, you know is this a particular institution that is unique in Tibetan Buddhism or is it something that has been widely uh, used and practiced across different religious com uh, Buddhist communities in Asia? So the idea of reincarnation isn't unique to the to the tibetan buddhist tradition um and, but having this idea of institutionalized reincarnates one who comes after the other and are usually associated that was the other thing i found in my research for the first book they're usually associated with specific sites mostly monasteries but sometimes communities right that they return back to and they become like the the person who's the owner or the the um person associated with that place and so, like the Dalai Lamas are associated with the Potala in Lhasa, the, 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 the Kamapas were associated with three monasteries Serpul Monastery, Kamagun, and Neti, in, uh, um, which they lost basically um, in southern Kham. So, they, they, so, so they're associated with this monastery, they would keep returning to that monastery. That's a new institution, what we're talking about with Kamapas establishing it, returning to this monastery, being the holder of the, the lineage in that monastery is new. But so, so it's kind of like an adaptation of a wider belief and understanding of reincarnation rather than something completely new. And, and particularly the, the, the Kamapa and the people that were promoting this idea of reincarnates went to a lot of effort to show that it had precedence because they're not interested in uh, being necessarily innovative, right? So they were drawing on precedence, but they, this was definitely a development 
that was unique to Tibet at that time. But I, you couldn't say that it's unique still to Tibet because the idea of having reincarnates was exported later to Mongolia and particularly Mongolia has got very strong uh, monastic institutions, but also Bhutan, northern Nepal, Ladakh. It, it, it got, yeah, it got uh, exported to lots of places. Okay, thank you for that explanation. Um, we also uh, oftentimes hear another um, term, which is rebirth, that is a very um, popular um, concept embedded in Buddhism. So is the reincarnation institution connected to rebirth, and how are these two related? Are they interchangeable, or are they the, sa- are they the same or not? Um, it depends what you're saying, because we're using English terms here, right? So, so I don't know. English terms are kind of floating signifiers in this context. You can kind of blend them up and, um, you know, move them around and use them however you want. And, I mean, I guess that's kind of what happened in the Tibetan tradition as well, but uh, they were kind of more specific about the terms that they were using. So the term that's mostly used to describe those who are reincarnate, uh, recognised as reincarnates within these institutional frameworks now in the Tibetan tradition is the word trupu, right? But that's actually a Tibetan translation of the Sanskrit term nirmanakaya, which means the bodily form of the Buddha. But during the um, the Kamapa's term, he doesn't really use that that ter- he, time. He doesn't use that term to describe people who are the reincarnates of or rebirths of other people. He uses the term yangsi or um, or yepa. So one who becomes again or one who is born again, right? Um, but, but, and he uses the word tuku to actually talk about his guru um, or gimpa, right? So he sees his, his guru as a Buddha. So what we have happening over the uh, the centuries really or during the, the, his lifetime and the times lifetimes of the fourth and maybe fifth Kamapas is this um, merging of the idea of a guru, a guru being a manifestation of a Buddha, therefore a Nirmanakaya, therefore a Tuku, and the idea of reincarnation as more and more people were recognized as reincarnations and the idea of being a reincarnate became merged with the idea of being a guru. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Does so that make this... sense? <laughs> that's, yes, that's really complicated, weird, like 300 years of history in 23 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay, so with those background information in hand, we can now move on to talk about the details of your book. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in this book that um, one unique feature of the third Gamaba's autobiographical writing is that um, in this autobiographies, he oftentimes included a depiction of some interlife journey. Yeah. Um, that term is really interesting itself. So what is an interlife journey? Can you help us understand that? Right. So in my, you know, when I found this, the CD with all of these, his, his collective works on it, there was a series of autobiographies. And one of them was my time from when I was young to when I was old. And another section is writing from when he's in Xanadu or in, in the Mongolian court. Um, but there's another part of his, um, another section of his uh, biography, um, which said my journey between lives and then my previous lives. Uh, which is unusual uh, in most people's biographies. So, um, and these were really fascinating. So, one of them, and, and they, they seem to me to be part of his uh, articulating his continued identity as a Kamapa with a connection to the, as the third Kamapa with a connection to the second Kamapa, Kamapakshi. So one of them describes the one where he talks about all his past lives he goes through and talks about how he was this 
Kamapakshi, the second Kamapa, how it's Tusen Kempa, the first Kamapa, and then goes all the way back through uh, other kind of luminaries in Tibetan meditation history and also to India and, and so on. And then he writes another section, which is how I got from being uh, Kamapakshi to being the recognized as Rangjun Dorje, the, so between the second and third Kamapas. And in this he talks about how he remembers passing away and it's a bit, uh, and his his consciousness, because so in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they have this idea that um, your consciousness dissolves, the, your your sensory consciousnesses dissolve in your body, and eventually the, your most subtle consciousness leaves the body, um, and and is, and it then the kind of through habituation takes on another form. So he describes this process, um, but then he describes how he dissolved. So there's two different sections to it, and different kind of parts to it that seem like they were a kind of a cobbled together tradition in a way of all that he had to build between all the different stories that he could have told it seems to have told one when he was a kid that was it that went one way and then, then had a more subtle version as he grew up and kind of melded them together but there's one part of the story uh where he attempts to reincarnate in a deceased body and that doesn't work and then he goes up into the um, to the into heaven into a, a pure realm and he's meditating and then these earth deities who I have to say are, are kind of my favorite people from this story uh, I just love these these earth deities from the um, who are kind of the protectors of the Tibetan plateau and um yeah I, I just love this idea that these women from all around the plateau who are like oh we need him to come down and help us out again so they they go up into the into the heavens and start an argument with him. And he says to them, would you just go away? He's like arguing back to these earth deities. Um, so it's like Mother Earth rises up and says, come on, we need your help. And he's like, oh, I'm, you're just tripping. Leave me alone. Um, and yeah, so they have this back and forth between them and he eventually agrees to descend back into Earth. Um, and, to, and he does this into the, like through a kind of symbolic version of his parents' bodies as being uh, kind of melded with the environment in which they were living, uh, and he goes follows a rainbow and comes back down into a human form. Okay, it's pretty cool. It's pretty. It's very like sci-fi and 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 like I don't know. I'm really interested in kind of ecological literature, and it really reminded me of this. A lot of kind of it should be yeah. Someone could do a film of that, not me, but someone could. Yeah. <laughs> this all of this sounds really cool. And um, I, you know, we just celebrated the Halloween uh, about two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago yeah. here in the United States. And I have to mention this one for our audience. So in one of the, um, this, um, you know, Ronjun Dorje's description of this um, interlife journey, he described how his predecessor, the second Kamava, had actually became a zombie or a rising corpse. Can you yeah. tell us more about that story? Because I'm sure there will be people who are really interested in learning the details <laughs> of that. So that's part of this kind of interlife tradition, right? So there's this story that, and it shows you how the idea of um, the, the reincarnation tradition and the being reborn tradition was melded with other types of consciousness um, control within the Buddhist meditation, the Tibetan Buddhist meditation tradition. So there was this idea that um, that was that came from the stories of Marpa, who was a predecessor. That you could that really good meditators could send their consciousness out of their body when they knew that they were going to die and find another consciousness. And so there's this idea that a tradition came from India to Tibet because an Indian sage sent his consciousness out and then travelled to Tibet. And there's also another tradition that Marpa's son sent his consciousness in a pigeon 
that then flew to India and then entered the corpse and became known as the Pigeon Prince, right? So he body hopped, yeah? But then, um, so... Ranjan, so Kamapakshi decides that he's not quite ready to finish his work as the Kamapas when he dies. So he sends his consciousness out looking for a body. Yeah. And he's floating around that it's, it's describes him floating around the Serpu um, area around the, where the monastery is in the Durlung Valley looking for a body. And he sees a young boy who has been um, and is be, about to be cremated by their parents because they've passed away. So it's just like an empty body. And he jumps into the body and reanimates it and jumps up. But this completely freaks the parents out who are like, ah, because there's a Tibetan tradition of uh, zombies really or zhulang, which means um, corpse uprises, like uh, body, uh, bodies that stand up, right? And so they think that they don't realise that this is a reincarnating super meditator. They think it's a um, a, 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 a zombie, a, a zhulang. So in his story, he says that he thinks that they stabbed him in the eyes um, and that he then goes blind and can't see and he thinks I'm not, it's going to be really tough to be a, a blind meditator if I've got to convince everyone I've been reborn. Uh, so this isn't going to work. So he leaves the body again. Yeah, but later he goes back to visit the people whose ch- child's body he has inhabited and there's one version of the story that says, oh, no, I just threw, we just threw sand in your eyes so that you would lie down again. Um, so there's, yeah, there's different versions of the story and different perceptions of what had happened. But, yeah, so he became a zombie, then that didn't work, and that's when he decides, okay, I'll have to go through the whole process of birth and so on again, yeah, and make the journey between lives, yeah. This is a fantastic story. I think at least one thing it can do to us is, like, maybe next time we have an encounter with a zombie or some kind <laughs> of spirit, we should treat them really nicely because they Think could be... This. Yeah. yeah, because they could a, be the reincarnations. I love there's a story about um, there's a story about one of the teachers, Chaturimpati, who was one of the Dalai Lama's teachers who lived behind Dharamsala and he met a Christian and Thomas Merton came up to see him and he said, um, I really wanted to meet you because I heard about this Christianity and it seems like you guys had a rola, a zombie that stood up after three days and then we usually make them lie down again, but you all started a big religion around them. <laughs> <laughs> that always cracked me up. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's different perceptions of, uh, um, yeah, of, of ha- what ha- this, this this interaction between consciousness and bodies. I found really fascinating in this whole thing. It's really a really key idea that flows the whole way through the stories. So many of us um, have heard about you know this Tibetan term known as bardu or the intermediate state. It's basically describing the period of time when a person has, you know, just died, you know, from that period of time to the time when the person is ready to um, be reborn. So the interlife journeys that Rangjung Dorje has described in his biography seems to be different from Mm. that intermediate state. So can you tell us, you know, you know, are these interlife journeys common in um, autobiography writings produced by Tibetan writers from his time? Or he was like, you know, a really unique person. Like he was the only one who has uh, included stories like this in his uh, autobiographies. So there's two different things happening there in your question, Soilan, if you don't mind me breaking them down. Right. So most of the way that the the bardo or the bardo is described in the broader tradition outside of um, kind of Tibetan experiences of it or Tibetan meditators, I should say, experience of it is through the pa- bardo turjel, 
uh, or like a liberation on hearing in the Bardo, which is a specific text from a specific tradition that describes like 49 days of experiences that one could have if they were doing certain meditations, right? So that's a very specific regimented form of the pardo, right? But everybody, in, according to the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, passes through in between stages. And they even talk about this idea of there being multiple pardos. I kept remembering I got stuck in it. I kept thinking last year that I was stuck in a phone pardo because I'd lost one and I wasn't going to buy a new one. I was like, oh my God, I'm in between phones and it's become a new type of pardo. But, but there's like a, um, but there's, there's always these intermediate spaces for everyone. Um, and it doesn't have to be that ritualized form that is associated with the bardo turdrul. I can't speak Tibetan at the moment. Bardo turdrul. Anyway, um, the, these, but there, the, there isn't that many people that write about the journey between the two lives. Given that, even everyone's supposed to experience them, but that idea of being conscious through the through the intermediary stage is supposed to be only associated with really higher level beings. Yeah, so there aren't many people who claim that consciousness um, to be able to be aware through that whole space. And there's also this, like, later traditions kind of said that if you are conscious, you should send yourself to a pure realm. Why would you come back? You know, so that's, like, part of the story of uh, Ranjan Dorji's interlife experience as well. So there aren't that many stories of that experience, but there are some. Um, there's a story about Tsongkhapa, for example, the, uh, um, uh, going into the Bardo after, but that's not kind of like a post-life story about how he went and did um, tantric meditations after he left the body. So there are some stories. They're just not heaps. Yeah. But does that make sense? Like, yeah. But but there's, I think that there's a kind of a fetishization about the idea of the Bardo in um, uh, kind of, acti- not so much, I don't know, academia, but like Western traditions where it's been linked to one text and one thing and it's not very, it's very other and very um, exotic. Right, so that was my I, my example of phone bardo because I was like, it's something that happens in little ways <laughs> throughout our lives, and then in between lives, and then in between worlds, it kind of has all of these different forms in the broader Tibetan tradition. I'd say, yeah. So, to some extent, can we say that um, this very intimate personal account of this interlife um, experiences that has been described by Rangjong Dorje makes this interlife journeys very special at least in his writings, right? I think it's very special, yeah, definitely. And it was about his identity, though. Mm -hmm. So it is rare. Right, mm-hmm. that that description, and it and it depends on a certain self understanding of that that uh, um, the, the the leap from one life to the other. But the other thing with what he's saying here is not just I remember passing through lives, but that memory gives me a connection to this person and establishes my identity. So it was really important to him as well as being very special. Yeah. And speaking of identities. You mentioned multiple times in your book that Ranjung Dorje was actually born into a very poor Tibetan family. And when he was found and identified and recognized as the reincarnation or as the third Paimaba, uh, mm. Kamaba, there was basically a huge um, sort of like, you know, a, a huge um, contrast or gap between his biological family and um, the new social context in which he's now placed in. So I was wondering maybe like um, was the, you know, could the inclusion of this inter, you know, this very unique and very special interlife journeys 
um, they were included there, you know, as one way for him to negotiate um, between the different powers that he had to navigate through once he was, um, you know, recognized as the third Kamaba. Could absolutely. that be a possibility? Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely, absolutely. And it it, it was kind of, you know, this, um, like all of these stories, his stories were kind of his currency. I don't want to be too crude, right? But it was kind of like, there's an amazing another story from his biographies, or no, it's for actually from a biography of him, of his dad, who was seems to have been quite a, like a committed uh, meditator, but also maybe like to drink. And um and took his son into town and was like, My son's the third come up and got really drunk and told everybody in the town. And then the son's asked to kind of prove that he is. So it's almost like a family, they've got this the family's like, this is our special kid. Um, he's a bit of a child prodigy, and this is his story. So it becomes like a kind of literary or um a storytelling uh currency that enables him to move from this kind of outsiders uh, um, displaced world into the centers of, of uh, power religious and, and political power in and economic power in the Tibetan plateau at that time yeah very much so and I think another aspect of his personal struggle with his identity is also reflected um, in a few things that you've already noticed in your book so basically you said, we don't even know. We only know him as Rangjung Dorje. We yeah. don't even know what his, you know, personal name was when he was born. And um, after he has arrived at the monastery, he treated one of his teachers as a as a as a father teacher person. Oh, oh, and Jampa. he never he yeah. really mentioned he really mentioned his family. Yeah. Um, how how should we you know interpret that? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, there's, there's there's different elements to it. One of them is something that you would know about, that idea of like renunciation and the monastic tradition, becoming part of the monastic tradition. And he took the vow, he seems to have taken the vows of a monk very seriously, right? So there is that idea of going forth um, from your family. Then there's the other thing is that, I, I don't know, I don't have proof for this, but I have a feeling that his parents just couldn't afford to keep him that there was an element of that as well. Like they were traveling around, like I, I plotted where they traveled with this little baby and they were traveling massive distances. And I know that people from that region are tough, but that are uh, like, a, you know, I was imagining this woman carrying this tiny baby, all of these different, different distances uh, in the first few years of his life, they were really doing it hard. So he, he went from a life of real hardship to being given um, as a child into the care of this, great or Gyempa who traveled around the whole world and was and and whipped the whipped the bum am I allowed to say that whipped the bottom of a an, an imperial envoy right so um, Ogyempa was like a force of nature so to be taken into that world I think was a real um it, it really became his world and he was really formed by those experiences with Ogyempa there's one one mention at one point that he maybe was helping one cousin at one point. So there is some kind of link with the with his family, but nowhere near. Like the second Kamapa's family is so intrinsic to his story and was running Turpul Monastery uh, and were very powerful. Um, so so they, like the, dis, the disjunct between what how the second Kamapa's family worked and how uh, Ranjan George's family worked is quite yeah, it's quite clear and quite, um, yeah, there's there's a very, very different worlds into which they've been born and different life circumstances. Yeah. Okay. 
And that's very not according to the Tibetan tradition, right, where there's a real emphasis on inheritance and um, family links and so on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I asked I ask you the question in the first place because as far as I, I can remember, um, in the autobiographies of many of the reincarnations in the Tibetan tradition, oftentimes they would describe in very, with a lot of detail about, you know, who the, you know, who the parents are and the circumstances, um, you know, on the days in which they were born. So there will be a lot of uh, detailed recordings. However, these details that were oftentimes included in the biographies or autobiographies of other reincarnations are completely absent um, in those so, writings. By there's, a, there's a story of when he was born and recognized the moon, so he's marked as a special kid, child, but he is on the roof of a distant relative's house, born outside because these parents have nowhere to go. So that kind of gives you a sense of, um, yeah, really someone coming from the margins into the into the power centers through his recognition by Ogempa as the third Kamapa. Yeah. And a follow-up question is that, do you think, you know, he's um, – the circumstance in his biological family, could that have also contributed to the difficulties that he had, you know, he later encountered? Because in the book, you mentioned that, um, you know, after his ordination, he traveled to, um, you know, many different monasteries. And even when he visited the three monasteries um, affiliated with the uh, Kamaba tradition, sometimes um, people let him in, but didn't really show much hospitality. And you know, mm. at one time, when he visited one of the three monasteries belonging to the Kama Kaju um, tradition, he was not even let in. Do you think he you walked know, he's... up to it and then he's walking away? He's <laughs> like, "What happened?" Yeah, yes and no. In some ways, I think the fact that he came from this really um, the, the fringes of society meant that he could be recognised as a reincarnate or a rebirth. No, so I'd say at that stage, recognised as Gamapakshi's rebirth because that whole kind of reincarnation infrastructure wasn't there. But he could be recognised as a rebirth without threatening the power of the of Gamapakshi's family and their hold on on the lineage and, and the lands and the, so on associated with the uh, with Serpu Monastery and Kamagun Monastery. Yeah, he could be in that space just as a reincarnate. There wasn't that sense at this time that, like, you know how we see these, I mean, you see the traditions now of um, reincarnates coming back and occupying the throne, taking on all of the power, um, and then and sometimes, like, masses of money and stuff, right, or at least land and influence. That I don't think that was there. I think he would kind of came on as an adjunct, as, like, another spiritual practitioner who happened to have, <laughs> Did you like the college reference there? Um, there he came on as kind of a, um, <laughs> he was like an adjunct to the monastery as opposed to being a tenured professor. Yes, that's what's going on there. Um, so, yeah, so he was a, <laughs> uh, he, he lived near the monastery. He had associations with it. They, they cared for him, but he didn't automatically become the abbot. And it really wasn't until the two, the two traditions, the two, the family lineage of the of Gamabakshi and Ranjan Dorji blended uh, years later. Um, and now I've got in my head that it's the fifth Kamapa, but I'm having a bit of a blank. Fifth or sixth that um, that you got that the kind of coming together of the abbot traditions associated with the Gamakagi monasteries and uh, the Kamapa lineage. Yeah. He finally I, got tenure three cent three births later. 
I I really like your comparison and of its um, circumstance with the academia word. I, in particular, I love this term. You know, this um, adjunct religious leader of the Kamagaki tradition. Um, that's genius. <laughs> okay. Um, so one of my personal favorite moments in this book is the moment when you comment on the ending of Rang Zhong Dorje's life. And I'm just going to quote you uh, directly. So in the book, you wrote, if you read his life story as a singularity, the ending is rather sad. As the dislike he had for Zanadu suggests, he had become increasingly captive to the wishes of its secular rulers. The young monk from a poor background acquired an education and pursued the religious path only to die a virtual prisoner in a faraway land. Contrarily, if you read his life story as one webisode, in a multi-life tale, his death in Zanadu and rebirth in Kongbo is a great escape. I was totally enchanted by the uh, the second interpretation, and it's you know the uh, the complete opposite of the sad ending. This you know the the interpretation that you can get from the first one. So I'm just curious: is this um, second interpretation like this alternative reading? Your own understanding, your own analyze, or it or is it an interpretation that you have found to have been circulating among Tibetans who have followed him in his time? It's definitely in the Tibetan texts that idea that he escaped. Yeah, his uh, so so that was, and it's part of this kind of tension. So I should say that so the the so the Rangjun Dorji was living in monasteries and became more of a sort of monasteries and hermitages around Tibet becomes more and more famous. And then there's like a power shift with the Mongols who used to be in, uh, very closely connected to the Sakya tradition in Tibet. They, they're looking for another power source in Tibet. So they, they look to come uh, to Rangjun Dorji and, and they bring him to the court where he kind of acts as a, um, a, a local miracle maker for them in the in the um, Mongol court and a teacher to the to the um, to the emperor, but he wants to leave and go back to Tibet, and he manages to go once, and then they drag him back again, and he's stuck in Xanadu, and he keeps saying, "I hate it here, I don't like it." You know, come, it, it's not, it's it's everyone else says it's an amazing place to be. He's he just doesn't like it, and so then he says to the emperor, "If you don't let me go, I'll find another way." And then um, he dies and is reborn in Kongpo. He says he wants to go back to the place where he was doing meditating in southern Tibet. And they say, you can't go back. And he's like, well, I'm going to die and go back. Right? It's very explicit in the story. And I think it goes to this uh, alternate reading of lots of Tibetan history, I think, um, where it, there is this constant kind of shifting dynamic between the power of the religious authorities that are working in multi-life spaces um, and those who are working in secular this life spaces because it's like what can you do you know if, if someone's not afraid of death if someone's uh, operating in a world beyond what you you're, you are able to control how do you control them and so he definitely it's definitely part of this idea that he this is his way of playing a power game against the emperor you may be in control of this entire empire but i can slip past you into another world and then come back it's very explicit yeah it's cool too hey I like it. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a very um beautiful interpretation and that completely lift uh lifted up my mood immediately. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I was really glad to uh to read that part of the book. Yeah. Um I think you mentioned that um when you started working when you stumbled upon this project, 
part of the reason for you to、um, stick with the project is because of the songs that you were able to find on those、uh, CD-ROM. And you also mentioned that you actually found at least a total of 138 songs composed by the Third Kamaba. But in this book,、um, the, you know, your book is construct, you know,、um, sort of structured in、uh, in two sections. The first section focuses on a biographical account of his life from his birth、uh, to his education and his retreat, and also leading to what his death. And in the second part of the、uh, book, and you included. English translations of many of the poems that、um, that was composed by him, and many of which has never been translated into English before. So, my question for you is: In this book, despite the fact that there are one hundred and thirty-eight songs and poems composed by the Third Kamaba, you were only able to include the translation of a handful of them. How did you choose and decide? Which ones to include and which ones to exclude? So,、um, for, say for my sins, for my bad karma, I guess、um, I、uh, translated all 138 poems with the help of some amazing、um, friends and and guidance.、Um, I at one stage I had to get up at I was getting in, someone going through it with me,、uh, Pertuku, who lives in Sikkim, and he said, "I'll take you through these poems, but you have to be here in his his."、Uh, Um, place where he was living at six a.m. and it was freezing. So、um, yeah, so I so I had to get up at six a.m. and work through some of the poems, but I did manage to get through all of them. And my friend Tenzin Rinpoche helped me in Australia as well.、Um, and uh, uh, there, there is a lot, and I will keep drawing from them. There's at some stage, I think I'll try and work with Shambhala again to do a collection of all of the different Kamapas songs. But I just、um, that that will probably have to be in the future a bit.、Uh, but there's I tried for here. I tried to pick ones that were of types, and not just from his songs, but also from the、uh, entire his entire、um, uh, the short pieces from his entire collective works. Right. So I'm fascinated by the fact that this man wrote all of these almost like cooking. It's almost like a cookbook for how to live in the in the in the、um, in the mountains. You know the Julian tradition, and、uh, he also trans- retranslated his、uh, another big project of his was the past life stories of the Buddha. The historical Buddha, as well as as well as his own life story, so and he included stories of women in in the in those as well that I thought was really super fascinating. So I tried to pick a bit from all of them, and、uh, um, and I also wanted to because I'd written this book after the other book on reincarnation, and so I I used some of the the poems on specifically on reincarnation in the first book. So I tried to pick ones that weren't part of that. Um, the reincarnation story, and we're talking about other things in, in this book. So it was kind of a poems of a type,、uh, poems that weren't part of the reincarnation story, and kind of ones that had something of a reputation. Like the the poem that's about Mahamudra, the aspiration of Mahamudra is one that gets recited at、uh, a lot throughout Kamakaku monasteries and prayer festivals and so on、um, all over South Asia and East Asia. So. Uh, yeah, I thought that was important to include my version. I feel like as a cover version, though, because so many people have translated it. So、um, my cover version of that song. But、um, there's a yeah, there's other ones that were less、uh, less well known. So I was trying to get、uh, a different di- different types and、um, different and different、um, different representations of different types of songs, and then from different parts of his oeuvre. Is that how you say it? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so since we're already talking about poems and songs composed by the Third Kamaba, I'm just wondering, 
Do you have a favorite among the ones that you have translated so far? Would you like, you know, would you mind reading it to us? Um, so I've got several favorites. There's one. I, there's 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 several favorites. There's one I really like, but it's too long to read. And this actually, there's one poem that changed my life that I should say because in in one way because it's so amazing. It was I was working through all these poems, translating one almost like one every few days, and I got to one. There's I'd been working on one that was about their Shandong Zhangdong. Like external intrinsic emptiness, um, that it had been part of a lot of uh, philosophical debates within Buddhist studies, and I'd worked on that, and I was like, oh yeah, that was interesting. And then I got to the next one, which was about a famine in which people had, were so desperate that they had uh, rev- uh, sunk to cannibalism. So we went from one to this other, and I, I knew about the the uh, d- philosophical debate, but this one was so striking and so intensely environmental as well. It was describing all of the different types and and economic, and it was so kind of it was like a protest song, right? So it, it was like Bob Dylan or something, you know. It was really not not so much angry as like calling out people in power. It called out the emperor as the king of thieves, and it was just so uh, so like. I don't know. It, it was yeah. It's like something would be people would be screaming on the streets, and I was so amazed by. It. I was like so struck by the contrast between these two different poems. But they both still sounded like Rung Chun Dorji. So that one I loved, and it also got me really interested in environmental history. And that's been the last five years since I worked on that project. Um, but there's other ones that are of a type where he's kind of really. Uh, he, he think he's one of the first Tibetans, or one of the only ones actually, until really recently, to talk about live in a city because he was in Xanadu. So that contrast between his life in the mountains and what it was like living in the city, I found that really amazing because, um, I don't know, I know you grew up in a different space, but I grew up with these stories of Xanadu as this mystical city. There's this really famous poem like in Xanadu by Coleridge in Xanadu to Kublai Khan. And when I was a really little kid in the 80s, there was this Australian singer called Olivia Newton-John who was in a movie about roller skating called Xanadu. Right, So I had all of these images of this mystical place in my head and he just is like, I hate this place. This place is full of uh, things that are going to mess with you. So that those poems from that, why I don't like Xanadu um, genre, <laughs> um, is all that set. I really like them as well because I, I find them really good to think about now. So do you want me to read one from the Xanadu set? So you yes, wrote please. this. um uh, so yeah you asked which is a favorite and that's like choosing between children or something goodness anyway but this one um uh, yes is very much uh uh what from the ones you wrote in danger that i really like okay now you are free from samsara's mud strike out for nirvana's dry shore now you have abandoned worldly relatives rely on sacred spiritual friends now you have stopped pointless chatter Recite secret mantras. Now you have stopped debauched exertions. Exert yourself at dhyana or meditation. Now you have renounced sweets. Rely on samadhi's food. Now that you have stopped hankering for towns, wander in mountainous borderlands. Because when you do, don't do do these things, external appearances become expert in deception. Children of the mind, they are crazy in the head. Preconceptions proliferate and last longer, but virtuous friends become increasingly rare. Ignorant veils and fogs get thicker and we wander on multiplying cliffs of depravity. Unwholesome friends lead us to prison, the three bad destinations where we will wander without end. 
So he's like, help, I need to get out of Xanadu before everything goes bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing though. I love all the imagery in it, right? It's like, and the idea of sweets. He's always going on about sweets and how he's trying to renounce sweets. It's so kind of, I don't know, relatable. <laughs> Is there a particular obsession with uh, sweet treats in Tibetan culture? Because I remember there was like a term like describing you know, some people um, as like us, you know, having sweet teas. Yeah. I, don't I know mean, there is, you know, but I don't, I, I read a lot of poems and I hadn't come across someone who's telling people off for eating sweets as much as Ranjan Dorji. <laughs> he seems to have a, there's a lot of his poems he talks that he's telling his uh, followers not to get too into sweets. And, and it wouldn't have been sugar at that point as well. It's like just sweet things. I just found that super fascinating. Yeah. And since we already talk about, um, uh, Rong Jung Dorje's um, reaction and, you know, and also his reflection on his experience in Zanaju. I wanted, you know, the next question that I wanted to ask you is not about um, the content of the book, but instead I'm interested in um, your decisions on the presentation of the book. You know, this book is based on very specialized research and it requires a full command of the Tibetan language. But you just wrote with such clarity, and I think you have a remarkable storytelling skill. And you began with the book. Um, you began the book with a very short sentence, and I quote you: "Rangjung Dorje did not like Zanadu." And when I read that sentence, I immediately began to think: you know, where is Zanadu? Like, what is Rangjung Dorje doing there in Zanadu? Like, why he didn't like it? So, as a reader, it captivated me immediately. It's like, you know, opening the book, um, you know, uh, about Charlotte's Web by E.B. Wipe and the, the first sentence is, where did Papa go with that ex? So your opening sentence to this book had the same effect, um, you know, as the one, uh, the opening sentence in Charlotte's Web had on me as a reader. I think this is a remarkable accomplishment because it is really challenging and not easy to write for the combination of the public and academic audience. Um, I'm just wondering, like, have you thought about um, presenting this book in this particular way from the very beginning when you began to work on this project or it was something that, you know, um, you know, was uh, gradually developed while you were working on this project? And how did you manage to write a scholarly book so engaging? Earlier, you mentioned that before uh, committing yourself to become a scholar in Asian studies, you worked as a journalist. And I wonder maybe, you know, Maybe your, uh, your your training as a journalist maybe have something to do with the way you craft and uh, present your stories in the book? Yeah. Um, well, first, thanks. That's really nice. Um, thank you for that. Um, some of it starts earlier because I come from – my dad used to tell stories all the time and I come from this tradition of storytelling. Um, but also I think – some of them were really boring, my dad's stories, so I kept thinking, how do you tell them better? But as being trained as a journalist, we got taught to write, you know, um, we, we got chucked out of the journalism course if we misused used the wrong it's. And uh, um, we had exercises, write in the active voice, change the sentence into the active voice all the time, right? It was, yeah, there, there was a lot of training in, in actual writing. But I actually think in terms of the, the idea, there's, there's two elements there. There's one thing about learning how to write for an, uh, a different audience, but then there's something about dealing with complicated stories and, 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 and uh, philosophical matters 
in an accessible way. And I learned that by being an interpreter for some very good Tibetan Buddhist teachers, right? Um, and in particular, I would say um, one uh, man that I translated for Gishu Bama for years who was a fantastic storyteller and would break down uh, and he, he would change the pace of the way he was teaching, right? He, he really thought about the way he was teaching and he would tell a story and then he'd do a little bit of philosophy and then he'd change it up. And, um, and so I think I, by interpreting for him and for other people, I learned about how you can get these ideas across through stories because they don't you can get a whole download of philosophical information this is pointless you don't take it in stories are an amazing very human i think uh it, it have no gift right of how to convey this information so that idea of thinking about how you tell these particular stories uh, uh, that, that embed this kind of Buddhist philosophy that can be complicated and relies on different world, different understandings of the world came definitely from like Genla, from Geshe-la and other people that I interpreted for. Yeah. And then in terms of this book, I had this idea in my head of making it very separate from the reincarnation book, which was much more about the tradition and Rangsha George's link to the reincarnation tradition. Whereas this one, when they approached me, it was his, uh, I got approached by Shambhala to write it. It was a focus on his life story and how how he lived and some examples from, combined with some examples from his, uh, of translations of his collective works. So yeah, I had a different idea in my head of how to tell the story. So this book project basically transformed by itself as you were working on it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I start off with this idea of how do you tell a story? Yeah, that's kind of, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't want to do books that you can't read. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I, I can't see myself doing that kind of ever. Oh, hopefully not. I, I want to be, that. My, my personal kind of journey is to become a better and better storyteller. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, precisely for that reason, I had this impression that I can imagine myself, you know, as a traveler, uh, maybe waiting for my, um, may- maybe waiting for my flight or, you know, in a train station, I wanted to spend some time and I can accidentally pick up a book and, you know, have a really good read and enjoying the time uh, that I can yeah. spend with oh, your book. good. I'm glad. And, and, <laughs> but, but more so than that, that makes me happy, not necessarily because just like of being able to tell the story is like, it's getting i kept having this idea that i was thinking about how ranjan dorji lived through his stories yeah and then trying to make those kind of act as a um uh, some way of making those stories uh accessible to people who were reading them in a very different way and and uh, i used this uh, epigraph in the beginning is epigraph is that what you say when you open a book i've got a mental blank on that term um uh, where he says at when at the beginning of his biography he says I'm telling you the stories of when I was young. It already feels like someone else's story. And if I write it down, it'll become someone else's story, like as a gift to the other people. And I just love that. That's just, ah, he, yeah, I, I thought that was really, really great way of thinking about telling stories about one's life. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, you know, Bruce, you've been so generous with your time. And um, it's such a great pleasure talking to you about, you know, the um, stories behind the writing of, of this pro, uh, of this book. So now this book is published already. And um, what are some of the new projects that you are working on right now? Would you like to share that with the audience? <laughs> um, okay, so as I said, at one point, this poem about famine set me off on a 
a whole other adventure. Um, and, and I've since reading that poem, I've been thinking about uh, Tibetan environmental history, a Tibetan and Himalayan environmental history. Um, so I would have finished in my next book, which is going to be a biography of the Yalongframpo River, which Ranjan Dorji crosses quite a few times. I would have finished that if I hadn't have spent two years in what, what feels like two years in lockdown. Um, so I'm just finishing that up as soon as possible. And um, I've also been, yes, yeah, so I've been working on uh, more of the kind of link between sacred geographies and environmental histories of this region, um, which I think, I feel like Ranjan Dorji introduced me to. Um, and, uh, and I'm about, after I finish the river project, I'm going to start writing a history of Himalayan ice. Um, and as a side project, I'm really interested, which is kind of more of a kind of a Buddhisty um, vibe. <laughs> I'm really interested in um, how you approach um, the uh, understandings of people keep talking about environmental anxiety or just general anxiety and the grief we've all experienced over the last few years through the pandemic. I'm interested in how um, we approach those kind of like environmental emotions uh, through from within a Buddhist f- framework or a Buddhist lens. Um, so that's kind of my side still religious studies project and the rest of it is more environmental history. This all sounds like really cool and exciting projects. And um, I hope we might be able to invite you back for another conversation when your next book is out. So um, thank you so much again, Ruth. Uh, it was a great pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.